can turn over to Philippians chapter 1. You can go to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be reading from verse 12 uh, to verse 18. And we're going to stop about almost the whole way through verse 18. Uh, because grammatically there's a bit of a break, so it might feel awkward, but most of your Bibles will kind of have that reflected. So we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to be covering 15, 16, 17, and 18. So this is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much um, for this word. Um, It is amazing to see um, the ways that your truth in your word just illuminates reality, Father. It is just amazing to see the way that you have put scripture together in a way um, that would grab our attention, and this is one of those passages. So, Father, we just pray in the depth of uh, this scripture and in understanding Paul's circumstances that we might be able to have a gospel-shaped perspective as he does, um, because, Father, you have not just given that kind of perspective to super-Christians. Father, you've given us to everyone um, who knows you and loves you and wants to seek after you and live a life that would be pleasing to you. And Father, we pray you would help us have that perspective. We'll pray all of this in your name. Amen. So on the screen, I believe, behind me, um, you'll be able to see um, a way that another uh, faithful pastor has summarized um, all of the truths of Philippians that we've covered so far. You could call them thesis statements, maybe. And I think sometimes it's helpful to see the way other pastors phrase them, because lots of um, good people before myself have um, preached faithfully. And the way he phrases these truths that we've covered so far um, go like this. Number one, put the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationships with believers. If you want to have deep friendships, if you want to have Christ-honoring relationships, then you'll have the gospel shape those relationships. Number two, put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. And that was in verses uh, 9 to 11. So the previous one was verses 3 to 8. And what Paul is explaining there um, is that if you have a life that's built on Christ, then you will depend on Christ, not just to share the gospel, but to represent the gospel in terms of your character. Number three, Paul says, put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations, which means the greatest goal of your life should be 
a desire to share the gospel with people who have never heard it or have not accepted it. And then the final uh, thing is number four, put the converts of the gospel at the center of your ministry. Very similar to the first, but specifically dealing with people who need to understand the gospel. The first can also apply to believers that they might grow in the gospel. You'll remember in verse 14, Paul explained that he wanted believers to be emboldened and encouraged and courageous as a result of seeing his example. And that's what happened. But verse 13, or uh, yeah, verse 13 and point number four here is talking about people who haven't heard the gospel hearing um, the gospel. Now, what we're covering now, though, is that in order for uh, to show Christians how we should really live, what Paul is going to do is explain his own circumstances. And he's going to explain not just what's happening to him, but how he's thinking about what's happening to him so that he would be a representative of Christ as he tells you about Christ. And that section is verse 12 all the way to 26. And so we're kind of covering it in chunks because Paul is talking about different parts of his difficult circumstances, and then he's applying a gospel perspective to them. So last week we covered this, and it was suffering. Paul was chained to a Roman soldier, and he had to go around Rome all the time and be tied to this guy who probably did not love the gospel, and he'd be replaced every six hours with another guy who probably hated the gospel, and that was hard. But Paul actually was very joyful in that situation, and he explained in verse 12 because he said, these circumstances have really served to advance the gospel. He could see the opportunities Christ had given to him, even in suffering, which means it wasn't just that Paul was content in his circumstances. Paul was actually grateful for his circumstances. He had an attitude that was actually very thankful that he was put in a difficult place because it advanced Christ's cause. So even if God's sovereignty resulted in his suffering, he was joyful. Another pastor, Alistair Begg, says it really well. He says, often the very challenges that appear to hold back the gospel actually prove to be the keys to its advance. I think we took one step forward last week in understanding that in terms of suffering, but Paul in verse 15 actually expands on one of the situations he described in order to really double down on this point. So two weeks ago, Paul explained this in verse 14. He said, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So there were Christians who became very courageous because they saw how joyful and thankful Paul was for his imprisonment. And they saw that that was a spiritually heroic thing, and they wanted to imitate him. And so those people, Paul actually continues to describe in the section we get to. In verse 16, he says, These people proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I am put in prison for the defense of the gospel. So Paul's really thankful for them and brings them up again. And the way that Paul actually phrases it is really cool. He says, put here by God, which is literally the word appointed, which means Paul knows and people who know Paul Know that Paul knows that Christ himself put him here because Christ himself made Paul an apostle. So if Christ can intervene in Paul's life and allow him to suffer, 
but also allow them to be joyful and to further the gospel in that, then they know they can be that too. They can live by that same example. And you might think, with that logic, that that's the only way that you could respond to Paul. That's the only way. So if you saw Paul's example, you too would look at him and love him. And you would think if other Christians were looking at Paul, they would have the same response. They'd be like, super pro Paul. This guy's amazing. I want to be just like him. But the surprising thing that actually happens is when you get to verse 15, that's actually not true. There are actually people who see what is happening to Paul and they respond in a very bad way. And verse 15 explains how they respond. It says, there are some, and it says indeed, which means actually, by the way, just to alert you to a surprising situation, there are some who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. There were apparently self-professing Christians who hated Paul. There were self-professing Christians who hated Paul. And the question is, why did they respond to Paul so badly? Well, Paul explains that a little bit when he gets to uh, this section of the letter, and he explains four words that describe their heart attitude toward Paul, which is the main thing he wants to focus on. He gives them two qualities in verse 15 and two qualities in verse 17. And the first one in verse 15 he mentions is that these people are envious of Paul, which means they're jealous. And jealousy is a thing that actually comes up a lot. If I were to poll any of you guys and ask, you know, have you ever dealt with jealousy before? I'm pretty sure every single hand would be raised. This is a very common kind of sin. But the Bible never, ever treats this sin as common. And that's why Paul actually uses this word because he's pointing to something very, very bad in their behavior. This word envy is actually listed in Romans chapter 1, verse 29, as part of what defines ungodly and unrighteous men. And he goes on to say that it comes out of the lust of their heart, and it is a dishonorable passion, and it's part of having a debased mind. So really serious words. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul lists it again, and he says it's a work of the flesh, which means it's coming from our sin nature. And that's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which he mentions right after. And the second word that he uses right beside that word is the word strife, which means someone who enjoys arguing or disagreeing with people. But not just like someone who likes to be on the debate team necessarily. It's a much more negative one. It's a kind of joy in like wrestling with people, not just physically, but in their words. Someone who actually likes disagreeing with people in order to frustrate them and doing it in an aggressive way. And those two words Paul puts together and then has an opposite word of goodwill because he's showing how anti-appropriate this response is. One commentator said it really well. He said that Paul put these two words together to express one of the basest, which means worst, one of the worst expressions of human fallenness. It means an unsavory delight that enjoys kicking an opponent who is down. That's the attitude Paul's explaining. He goes back for a second in verse 16 to compare them with uh, these other Christians who really love him, the same people as verse 14, but then he jumps again in verse 17, and he gives a third and a fourth word to describe them. The third word he uses is 
selfish ambition. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're selfish. That word selfish ambition is, is one word, but it is actually describing a certain kind of person with a certain kind of job. It could uh, be someone who was hired to do something immoral, so an assassin, for example, someone who was hired to kill somebody else, um, or it could be someone who was hired to represent something immorally. For the adults in the room, you could think of like a lobbyist, but for an example of something, imagine if, if someone paid you um, to represent cigarettes and your whole job was to make cigarettes look really good, whether you're lying or over-exaggerating parts of the truth, so representing something wrong. The word selfish ambition has to do with that, and the key there is that you're doing something immoral for a bad reason. Both of those examples were like you have to be paid money, which is like not a good reason to do something wrong, is that you get paid to do it. But these people are doing something similar. They had a bad motivation and a bad justification for doing something wrong. And the doing something wrong was hating Paul. And the reason, the money that they were paid was their own selfishness. Maybe they got followers, maybe they got attention, but whatever it was, it's generally referring to acting for your own gain regardless of the relational problems that it causes. It places self-interest ahead of what God declares is right and what is good for others. Which actually basically points to the very next word, which gets at the other side of this, which is they are not sincere which means their motives are sinful. They have a motivation that God would consider hypocritical, wrong, or unholy. And that's the real point that all four of these words are trying to communicate. God is saying through Paul that these people have evil motives. It's not just what they're doing is wrong, but it's coming, it's coming out wrong because it's gone wrong in their hearts First, very sadly, there are people whose selfishness and sin is so strong that they call themselves Christians, but they're more concerned with hurting Paul than honoring Christ. And the motives are clear because their attitude on the outside has been proven to be wrong. And the attitude he explains in verse 17 by saying, they want to afflict me in my imprisonment. It literally means add pressure to my chains. It's like a pun. It kind of comes out as, they want my tight chains to feel even tighter. They like that Paul is suffering. They like that he cannot preach the gospel. They like that the Roman soldiers would probably not be very kind, and they like that they get to be shown as the Christ declarers, and Paul does not get to be seen that way. The reality is we actually have no idea why they hated Paul so much. Paul himself doesn't give a lot of reasons, and so we won't spend much time explaining reasons. Lots of very smart commentators and pastors have given lots of reasons, but Paul doesn't. But I think one thing that he gets out that's really important is that this kind of suffering is very relatable. Tell me if you believe this statement. And you can actually raise your hand if you believe this statement, because maybe it's different for everyone. But tell me if you agree with this statement. Often the hardest problems in life are people problems. Raise your hand if you agree with that statement. Okay, so that's a pretty good estimate here, because that's kind of proven in the data I've gotten from you guys before. So a couple weeks ago, I polled you guys and asked, what's 
the things you're most thankful for, or the first thing you can think of you're most thankful for, and the second thing was what's the most difficult thing in your life right now. And what was really fascinating is almost half of you said that the thing you're most thankful for is people, and almost half of you said the most difficult part of your life is people. And, and I find that to be universally true almost. If you have close friends who love you and care for you, or you have family members that are really demonstrating love for you, or they support you, almost everything in life can feel great. But if you have certain people in your life that are just against you, or they're just after you, or they're just antagonizing you, especially when that feels totally undeserved and unjustified, that random person at school who's just on your back, that random sibling or family member who just seems to bug you so much just to bug you, then those situations, it can almost feel like everything is going wrong. And Paul feels the same way. This difficult situation does feel extra difficult. That's why he's saying it, because people problems are often the hardest problems. But this, this is where the difficult situation becomes very difficult for us to understand. And the reason it's very difficult to understand is how Paul responds to the situation. And his response is really the key point of this whole sermon, and it's in verse 18 where Paul says this, what then, which means how should you understand the situation? What's the main thing you should take away, the way you spiritually interpret this situation? And he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's it. That's a very surprising response. It's very different than you might expect if you were in the same situation. And I'll give you three reasons why it's really, really surprising. The first reason is that Paul's constant assumption is that these people are, in fact, Christians. There's lots of places in the Bible where Paul lists people doing unchristian things or representing an unchrist-like behavior. And Paul points it out and says, that is wrong. But you'll notice, actually, in, in verse 15, Paul says this, some indeed preach Christ. And that some is connected with the verse 14 word brothers. So grammatically, most commentators agree that when Paul says some, he's saying there are some Christians who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. That's really surprising. That should surprise you. Because if you've ever read the New Testament, you'll notice all over the Bible, Paul is not shy to point at people and say, they are not Christians. He actually does that a lot all over the place. And he doesn't do that here. He does point out their behavior, but he doesn't expand on it very much. And that's actually the second very surprising reason. He points out their motives, and then that's it. He's very brief and vague. He doesn't describe them in very much detail, which again is really surprising. You got to note that. It's really surprising because all over the place in the New Testament, he does explain a lot what it looks like to live like a hypocrite. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. I know those were probably too many chapters to write down. The whole point is there's lots of full chapters in the New Testament where Paul says, here are all the specific ways 
that you might be living like a hypocrite. And here's some examples. And Paul doesn't do that here. And this is the third reason it's really surprising. And this is the most important reason. Paul exposes their sinful motives, absolutely, but he also affirms their ministry. Paul admits that Christ is proclaimed when they preach. Paul doesn't call them heretics. He says they're Christians and their preaching is sound, apparently. He says in verse 15, they preach Christ. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. He affirms their ministry. Verse 14, when he says there are people who are bold to speak the word, he's saying these people are bold to speak the word. Bold in a bad way, but speaking the word, which is the gospel. And if they weren't preaching the gospel, Paul would never say that. Because that's like the antithesis of what it means to deny Christ. For example, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So he says, I don't care if you wake up one day and this beautiful, hunky, super bright, blinding your eyes angel shows up and says, the gospel is this. If that's different than what the Bible says, then that's a curse. And if you believe that, you're cursed. But Paul doesn't hint at that at all here. He actually says they do preach Christ. And the whole point that I hope you're getting with that is that's super weird. That doesn't feel like the Paul in many other places in the New Testament. It does not feel like that. And there's a really, really important reason that he does that. But before I explain that reason to you, I want to just very briefly answer two quick questions because I think there's two questions people often have with this kind of a message. And one way that's important to address those questions is to have not just this passage by itself understood, but having the rest of the Bible help understand this passage. Because the whole Bible is written by God, which means the whole Bible agrees with itself. So Paul's not saying anything different from himself. He's also not saying anything different from the rest of the Bible. So let me explain that to you by answering two questions that you might have. And the first question is this, can unchristlike people advance the gospel? Can people who understand the gospel but act so differently than Christ, could they actually help in Christ's mission? And the answer is yes. Yes, they can. If you're a Christian here, then there's a part of you that should believe that. Because every Christian, I believe, in this room understands that it's amazing that you could be used for the gospel. Like when you know your own sinfulness and your own brokenness, you can sometimes marvel at the fact that, wow, I cannot believe God could use me to help in his kingdom purposes. That's amazing. They could use me despite me. But what about these people? Because they're really broken. They're like really hypocritical. They're really messed up. And Paul actually says, yes, they can be used. But an important qualifier on that statement. The reason they can be used is not because of the messengers. It's because God has promised his message won't fail. Even if the messengers are a mess, God has promised that he can use even broken messengers, even really broken messengers, because he is sovereign in the way that people would receive the message. 
Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11. This is one of those verses that you should have written down in your journal or in your Bible or highlight it somewhere. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, it says this. In the same way that God guarantees rain to come to the ground and that he guarantees that plants will respond to the rain and grow, he says this. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Not maybe, it will. In Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 25, God says, I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord. Which means even if a broken person shares the truth of the gospel, God can blind you to a lot of the misrepresentation of the person's character and point you to the truth because his spirit is more powerful than the testimony of a messenger, even a broken one. That's why Paul says, only then in every way, whether in pretense, which means with false appearances, even with a broken messenger, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. I rejoice in Christ's sovereignty over the broken messenger. And because we know that regardless, whether it's really broken messengers like them or really broken messengers like us, we can trust Christ's sovereignty over his gospel message and rejoice in that. But there's another question, and I think it's the bigger question of the two questions. And the question is, do motives not matter? Is Paul saying that as long as you have an accurate gospel, it doesn't look or it doesn't matter if you want to honor Christ. It doesn't matter if you have pure motives. And the answer is no. Paul is not saying that motives don't matter. He's saying motives do matter. It's not just the accuracy of your gospel that matters. It's also why you want to share that gospel accurately and why you want to share that gospel in your character. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Proverbs 21.2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You know, a good work can be good on paper. It can be objectively righteous. But it's only considered worship if your intention is to glorify God. God will let his message go forth, but whether he qualifies you as worshiping him through that is based on your motives. God proves that all according, all over the Bible, that good according to God is a definable thing, but you have done something good for God if you did it because you love God. That matters in so many places. One of my favorite examples in the Old Testament is how God chose a king over Israel. When he pointed at David to be king, instead of tall, dark, handsome Saul, which everybody else loved more, God explained why it needed to be David, not Saul. He said, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It doesn't matter that Saul's cute. It matters that David is pure and loves the Lord. And if you've read your Old Testament, you know David fails in very serious ways, but that's not lost on David either. That's why so many of the Psalms written by David 
talk about his motives and asking God to purify his motives. Test my heart and my mind. Psalm 26, 2. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Psalm 51, 10. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 24. Motives matter. Because God does not just want to be honored in your actions. He wants to be honored from your heart. And Paul cared about that too. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 5, that one day Christ is going to bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul cared about motives because he knew Christ would expose all our motives one day when he returns. Everything we've done and why we've done it, Christ will bring out of our hearts and display before himself and before you. And that's something that affected Paul's apostleship because even though he knew he was commissioned by God to be an apostle, he knew that if he was truly going to be an apostle, he needed to be one from the heart and his actions needed to prove his heart. So for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Paul says, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And then to prove that he really meant that. He really was doing things to please God, not to please man. He proved that by his actions. Because he says later in 1 Thessalonians 2, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, which is like, we really, 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 really loved you a lot, so that we were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. When Paul wanted to honor Christ, he naturally looked like Christ, and he showed gracious love like Christ. And actually, that is how he justified and proved his apostleship so often. Motives matter. Motives matter. And that's actually why Paul brings out their motives, because they mattered. And he wanted you to see that it is so easy to have all of this excitement and passion and do all these things well, like preach the gospel well and be accurate and be so unlike Christ. Actually, when I was looking at this, I thought of this illustration. When I was a teenager, I went to this camp, and one of the first girls that I met at this camp um, was a self-proclaimed atheist. I think her parents made her go to this camp, but she would talk about it all the time, and she would talk about how ridiculous um, she thought it was that anyone would believe that God exists, let alone worship him. She said it multiple days. And then I remember going to chapel one evening, and the preacher was explaining the Bible, and something happened, and I was just excited about it, and I wanted to glorify God. And we did worship, and I was like, this is amazing, and I feel so good about this. Like, God is so awesome. And I was so hyped up on this experience. And the first thing I did when the service was over is I went and found that girl, and I looked her in the face, like, more confidently and, like, shaking than, like, I ever had. And I'm like, God exists, and you're an idiot. Yeah, that's the appropriate response. <laughs> Is it right to defend God's honor and existence? Absolutely. 
Does that mean you can justify it like the most ungracious behavior possible? Absolutely not. I wish a lot I could go back to that Clifton and just like, man, but that really happened. And I think part of the reason Paul is trying to point that out, even just for a couple of verses, is that could be any of us, seriously. Enthusiasm and accuracy in being a Christ follower is not exactly the same as being like Christ and wanting to look like Christ because you love Christ. And it's really easy <laughs> to look like a hypocrite. But the reality is we're, we're still left with something because even that is still a minor point here because the main thing Paul is getting at is their motives are really bad, but then he moves on, like right after. And that's still weird because why would he go to expose their motives? Why would he go to these great lengths, even in a couple of verses, to say these guys have got the wrong reasons for doing things and then move on? And listen, because this, this is the whole major point of the whole sermon right here. The reason he's exposing their motives is so he could maximize attention on his motives. He's going to say, they think this way it's wrong. We don't need to go into, like, into depth of how wrong they are by exposing them. I need, in one sentence, to sum up to you my motives. And listen, your motives should be Paul's motives. And his motive is to bring attention to Christ. Paul asks, verse 18, what then? Does it matter that people are dismissing me as an apostle? Does it matter that they dishonor me as a follower of Christ? Is it wrong that they have like the worst attitude towards the gospel of Christ advancing because I'm in prison? Does that matter? No, it doesn't. Because Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The two main words from this sermon are this. The first is motives. Your motives matter. And the second is the objects of your motivation, which cannot be, keyword, your reputation. Paul is preaching about reputation. Paul is saying it doesn't matter that people respond to me rightly. What matters most is that Christ is getting attention and that people might understand him rightly. If Jesus is receiving attention and honor and glory, then it doesn't matter if I receive attention and honor and glory because I'm a finite human servant and I can't save anyone. But Christ can and he will because he's being proclaimed. And that's all that matters. If Paul's concern is that and he's explaining that and he's not explaining other things to explain that, then the question you should be asking is, shouldn't you have the same concern? Because the reality is we care about our reputations way too much. Way too much. Think about how many times you asked yourself the question, should I do this or this for Christ? We care a lot more about our shame than our sin, so often. We care a lot more about being embarrassed for our other people more than we care about avoiding sin and not sinning. 
We care a lot about making choices based on what other people think rather than what we think. We want to look good in front of him. We want to look good in front of her. And we think so little about wanting to look good before Christ. I think we'd all be a lot better Christians if we had an angel of two watching us and walking along with us and just seeing the expressions on their face when we do things and see if they think it's weird, then it's weird. Because so many things we do in the world that everyone thinks are normal are so weird to God. Because the kind of concern that we have for our reputations gets in the way of the gospel. And if you believe the gospel, that shouldn't make sense to you. And it should be convicting. I heard an illustration just today about, imagine there was a man stuck in the desert and he was like crazy dehydrated. He had no water. It's not a mirage. It's a, it's a real situation. And he comes across a lake, right? And so he's crawling towards the lake to get water. He's like crazy bone dry. And then this dude gets in the way. He's like, hey, how's it going? And he's a water salesman. And he starts expanding on, uh, I got some charts here to explain how good water is for you. And I've also got uh, this chart that explains the molecules in water and what they do to your health. And I've got all these advertisements. It's only a 32-hour long video that if you watch, you'll really want some water. And all the time, that dude is standing in the way, giving that presentation, getting in the way of the guy actually getting water. That is like trying to preach the gospel but being distracted by your concern for your own reputation. We can care so much about people thinking good of us that we care nothing about them caring about Christ because we get in the way. There's a famous pastor, maybe the most cool name I've ever heard, Count Van Zizendorf. Maybe it's the dumbest name you've ever heard. I think it's cool. <laughs> He wrote these words on his tombstone. Some of you have heard before. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. I think a lot of people see that that's a very honorable thing to say. I think very few people live like they believe that. Sometimes I struggle in the fact that I don't think I believe that the way I should. And the reason we all get that is because it makes sense but we don't live like that. And the problem is we keep living like that because we don't realize how ridiculous we look. How ridiculous we look. It's like a waiter who works at the greatest restaurant in the whole world with the greatest chef in the whole world. And that chef makes his most famous dish that everyone in the world says like, this is the best lasagna or whatever it is. I hope you like lasagna so it makes sense. And he brings out like the world's greatest lasagna and the waiter puts it in front of him and these people are like crying with excitement and they're about to dig in and the waiter like gets in the way. He's like, I did a good job, right? Did you see me? Did you see me? Wait, this, I waited this table like nobody's business. Have you, did you see? It's like, I just want to eat the lasagna. Like the, great, the world's greatest lasagna is right there and you're pointing to you. That is like people delivering the gospel and wanting other people to look at them and say, look how good of a gospel delivery person I am. That's how ridiculous that is. And what Paul is, is pointing out, and I'm trying to make it really, really clear, is that 
that doesn't need to be you, actually. Even though every one of us, I think, struggles with the same thing. We care so much about us, and we don't care enough about Christ, which is why we don't share the gospel as often or as passionately as we should. But it doesn't need to be that way, actually. It doesn't need to be. We can actually point out how ridiculous that is, and then we can change. And the greatest thing is, it's actually a very simple process. Paul actually uses this point as a jumping off point when he goes into chapter two and he starts explaining humility. Humility is a big emphasis. It's like one of the most important tools in your character toolbox you could possibly have. And I often think, I don't know if someone gave me this line at one point or not, but the line is, the line between being humbled and being humiliated is a very thin line, which means sometimes you need to be embarrassed to get an actual accurate view of yourself. Like we get embarrassed and then it's like, oh, yeah, I actually kind of deserve that. Like I'm actually not as big a deal as I think I am. That's a very humbling thing. But Paul could have said that in this situation. And I think a lot of people think he did say that. He's like, I got embarrassed, that's eh, fine. Anything that humbles me is great. And there is something true in that. But what he's saying actually is a little different. What Paul is actually trying to say is, I don't have time to be distracted by my reputation because I'm not looking for honor because I'm too distracted by looking at Christ. My motivations have become purified because I'm not taking my eyes off of Christ and his worthiness. Just consider the importance of Christ that Paul explains in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, next week. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Everything in my life means absolutely nothing if it's indirectly about something else or it's unrelated to Christ. Even dying is a good thing because I'll get more of Christ when I die. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why could Paul speak so enthusiastically about Christ and how important he is? One thing is obvious, which is because Christ is the God of the universe, so of course, but on a personal level, it was even more than that, it was because he understood the love of Christ, that the God of the universe would forsake his eternality, would come here and die, and yet rise again, so that us, at our most unlovely, could be with him in eternity. And that kind of love is so powerful that it can change your love of self into love for Christ. I'm going to do something that some of the homeschoolers might hate. Uh, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for one of the greatest novels ever written, which is Pride and Prejudice. Okay? I'm not going to spoil everything. I'm just going to say one thing that's closer to the end. But you've had 210 years to read this book, so that's your fault. There's a main character named Elizabeth, and there's a man who loves her, her named Darcy, 
And Darcy proclaims his love for Elizabeth at one point, and she's like, you're cocky, you're prideful, you're a jerk. No. And she leaves. That's a lot of the book. But later on, through a series of events, Elizabeth finds out Darcy has actually done something incredibly kind for her family, incredibly generous. And he could have done it because he's a nice guy. He could have done it because it's the right thing to do. But it also cost him a lot of his reputation. It made a lot of people in the world look at him worse. And Buddy did it anyway. And eventually, near the end of the novel, Elizabeth goes to Darcy and she says, thank you so much. That was incredibly kind. Thank you for loving my family so well. And this is what he says to her. He says, if you will thank me, let it be from yourself alone. Because the wish of giving happiness to you, I won't attempt to deny. But your family owes me nothing. As much as I respect them, I believe I thought only of you. He said, the only reason I did it is because I love you. I know it was the right thing to do. I know it was generous. But I love you. And that's why I did it. And then he explains that he didn't always think that way. He said, I've been selfish all my life. As a child, I was given many good principles, but I was left to follow them in pride and conceit. And such I might still have been except for you. He used to do good things so he could look like a good person. But when he loved her, it purified his motivations, not just his actions. And if you think that's possible for a person, that is exponentially more possible through Christ. When you look at Christ accurately, you will love Christ more. That's a guarantee. And when you love Christ more, you will love yourself less. And I mean that in a good way. You are valuable. You are important. You are made in God's image. But we are also sinners who Christ needed to die that we would be with him for eternity. And when we have an accurate knowledge of his love for us, when we were at our most unlovely, you'll be surprised at how little you will care what people think of you. And how much you will care that other people know Christ. This is the last thing I'll, I'll share with you. It's a quote from John Owen, who's a Puritan, He's one of the greatest preachers ever, and also sometimes a little complicated. But I also have the quote on the PowerPoint, if it's easier for you to follow. Ooh, words. Words are scary. Let me read it for you. And you want to pay attention, because this is one of the best quotes I've, I've read this year. John Owen said, The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent more glorious, and more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, could attain or afford. Which means Christ is infinitely more beautiful than any single thing in this entire world. Without the knowledge hereof, the mind of man, however priding itself in other things, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. Which means if you don't understand the beauty of Christ over everything, you don't understand anything. That's what he's saying. And then he says this. The loveliness of Christ, therefore, deserves the most rigorous of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For future blessedness shall consist in being where Christ is and beholding his glory. What better preparation can there be? than in a constant contemplation of that glory, in the revelation that is made in the gospel unto this very end. 
that by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. The point, if you don't get it, is actually super simple, which is if heaven is going to be beautiful because Christ is there, why are you wasting your time looking at other things that won't exist for eternity? Like you, if you deny Christ. We are so expendable. And yet Christ has given us eternity. Because he loves us, because he wants to use us, because he wants us to be part of the story to glorify him forever. And the point that you should be getting in this is Paul is saying all of this on behalf of God because God wants you to have joy in this. This is why it's good to be a Christian. One pastor said it well. God saves us for the praise of his glory, and this is something more beautiful and captivating than your own self-importance. It is more pleasing and satisfying than your pride, and it is more glorious and majestic than our tiny lives. The biggest thing in the way of the gospel is us, and the biggest thing in the way of our joy is us. And Paul is telling you you have hope in the most simplest of ways possible. When someone slights you, when someone comes after you in the most unjustifiable way, when someone throws hate or shade at you for the most unfair of reasons ever, just remember, you're bound for eternity and Christ loves you. But you won't get that if you don't look at him. One of the most difficult things in the whole world is to put yourself aside and to see something more beautiful than yourself. And what Paul is actually trying to explain in light of evil people doing good things, you, an evil person, we are evil people, your motives can actually be purified. It starts with looking at Christ and seeing his punishment for your sins, and then it gets the result in the purified power that you've been given by Christ over sin that you would not only be able to represent him more accurately, but you would be also able to enjoy him more thoroughly as you do it.